Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a second-in-a-row re-release tribute to a prior guest who recently passed away. Last week, we re-released our interview with real estate legend Gerald Hines, who died several weeks ago. This week, we're re-releasing my interview with John Stewart, who passed away a few days ago, Sunday, September 6th. The original interview with John was a conversation from December of 2018, and I will now admit that it was an interview that I wanted to get on tape with John, who'd recently made it through an initial round of cancer treatment in case the disease came back. I wanted John's inimitable voice to be a part of Leading Voices. A few words about John, who was a friend and a long-term inspiration to me, both personally and career-wise. The thing that you need to know about John is he was one of those larger-than-life people. He was a big man with a big voice, a big smile, big energy, a big intellect, and maybe most importantly, a big heart. John was truly loved by all who knew him. He and his wife, Gussie, were generous souls. They have a beautiful historic home in San Francisco just below Coy Tower. I think that John and Gussie felt a duty to the place to share it with others, not as members of high society, but as citizens of our democracy. Citizen being a word not often used in this sense these days. I cannot count the times or the variety of charitable and political causes where John and Gussie hosted fundraisers and discussion groups in their living room. John was one of those people in business who truly was able to marry his heart in his pocketbook. He did well by being good, words that have become somewhat cliched and where intention becomes debated. As anyone who knew him will attest, and you'll hear in our interview, John's commitment, generosity, and intellectual horsepower to engage in the topics of social justice, particularly around housing and our crazy politics, was unquestioned and 100% authentic. No subtlety here, John cared. He was the real deal. John, I'll miss you, and I'm pleased to share this episode in memoriam for you again on Leading Voices. So John, let's start just with a headline of what the John Stewart Company is, and then I want to hear your story, and then we'll come back to the work that you do. Sure. Right uh, today, we have uh, about 1,400 employees um, in five offices in the state. Our mission statement basically is to own, operate, and develop uh, mixed income, mostly low income housing, uh, mixed use, and mixed age. So if you were to say to me, what's your ideal project? I would say something that has mixed age, some seniors, some family, some moderate income, and some very low income, Uh the inclusionary concept, and uh, mixed use. We've had we've have several projects where we have restaurants, although they're painted the backside. The community loves it, and we have so some retail. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are now. We have the companies owned by we have we have five uh, equity uh-huh. uh, persons. I've sold my equity. I'm board chair, but um, the current CEO, who's been fantastic, Jack Gardner, did exactly what I did. He sold off pieces to long-term employees so that a lot of people have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Most of our key people have been there for 20 or 30 years. Our turnover rate is close to zero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Turnover rate is a negative and it's a positive sometimes. So some change, I always say, and this in, keeps me in business, but some change is good. Right. No change is bad, mm-hmm. but loyalty really matters. It does. And I think we've had... 
I think we have high trust, high agreement, uh-huh. mostly in the company. You know, the combinations, high trust, high agreement, low trust, low agreement is bad. That would be. But sometimes um, high trust, low agreement with the devil's advocate can be healthy. Mm-hmm. So you have somebody in there that is not going to always agree with you. Absolutely true. So, so John, I, I want to hear your story, how we, how we got to this place and how you built this career. And you're from California originally, right? Yes. Grew up here, went to school here, mm-hmm. Bay Area. Got out as an undergraduate of Stanford back when pterodactyls were flying the earth in 1956. <laughs> when we, you know, I was a lowly liberal arts major, sort of focusing on uh, history and finance. And I, I really had no idea what I wanted to do, except I thought I would run something or manage something and be an industry of some sort. And, and um, beyond that, I you know, basically had no idea. But it, it was a time in the economy which was, you know, was totally serendipitous. Little did we realize that recruiters came to the campus and they recruited you, although what did you know? Nothing. Right. So anyway, I got recruited by U.S. Steel, and the sound of it was very exotic and open hearth furnaces and what have you, and how could that not be interesting? It was really boring. I lasted three years, uh, no, a year and a half before I left before they fired Where'd me. Where'd you go? Did they recruit you here, or was that They recruited else? me in San Francisco, then shipped me to L.A., which is uh, turned out where I lived for a good part of my life until 1975. Uh-huh. But I found that the that large corporation was stultifying, and I had kind of more entrepreneurial bent. And so when I was in L.A., I, I made a change to a large conglomerate called TRW, which is then and is now a, a multinational. And then, um, what did you join them to do? Um, I was working on a number of different. You know, they had young management trainees, and, and we were looking at various acquisitions. And uh-huh. um, I was, you know, just a, a staff guy, and um, doing. You know, we were analyzing companies to acquire. Uh-huh. And this is in L.A. Still, this is in L.A. Yeah. And lo and behold, in the '60s, um, there was something called the space program. We had a war going on in Vietnam. We also had Gemini and Apollo, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo in that order. And TRW was a huge player. Yeah. Uh, And they actually moved 2,000 people from L.A. to Houston. Somebody said, you know, you need to go down there and help them get established. Right. Lo and behold, after uh, John Kennedy was assassinated, the the space center was shifted from Boston, funny thing, to Houston, uh, and the chair of the Senate of the Senate uh, Space Committee was LBJ. He moved everything to Houston, and so I said, "Okay, that sounds interesting. We get to move people and build some buildings." And uh, so I moved my family uh, to Houston from um, LA, and. Um, there, something did happen. I mean, in, in careers, once in a while, there's sort of a choice point. You, you sort of, it's sort of binary door Apps. number one or door uh-huh. number two. I enjoyed it, and we, our whole group, really saw the astronauts and what was going on close up close and personal. But I was interested in sort of finding out more about life in a southern city, sort of southern Houston. Mm-hmm. 
And so I thought I would go down um, on a Saturday morning and check out what was known as the Houston Council on Human Relations, which was basically the liberal element of the Democratic Party. There were no Republicans in those days. So I went in. I said, I'm looking to be involved. I'm from, you know, I'm from California. I have a passport. <laughs> and uh, they looked at us askance. What have you got? And they said, we've got crime. We have uh, education. I thought, oh, that's how many head angels can dance on a head of a pin. Yeah. Then they said, we have, this is the ultimate oxymoron. We have low-cost housing. What they really meant to say was high-cost housing for low-income people. And I said, I've always been interested in real estate. And I, I thought that would be a challenge. Uh, so I said, I, okay, I'd like to go on that committee. I went on the committee. About six months into it, the chair decided to, to leave. And I ended up as a, I think I was 29 or 30, I ended up sharing this 15-person committee. Um, and you had to understand that Houston in those days, this is the 1964 or so, right. had no zoning and no housing code. They viewed HUD as nearly, you know, a, a communist sort of the deep state um, federal government coming federal and government, telling us what to do. Uh, more insured mortgages were looked at at scans. They couldn't get them. They didn't qualify. So anyway, our committee got. We wrote some reports, and I had met the mayor and, and talked to him about this and that. He wanted to see if I could get some money. Our committee could set some money from the Ford Foundation. We went back uh, to New York, and um, lo and behold, we got then a large sum of money. It's chump change now, $700,000. This is 1964 or 65 for a low-income housing fund. I got interest. The low-income housing element in Houston was what really triggered me. I looked at the third and the fifth wards in Houston, and I thought that Watts looked like Beverly Hills. I had never seen anything like it. I looked at it and I said, that is really an interesting challenge to see what we could do about that because the conditions were really deplorable. Really bad. So that, that, that really was a change, a change point, choice point for me. Do, am I interested in that? And then lo and behold, the mayor asked the CEO of TRW to contribute yours truly as a young executive director of a big commission they were forming to do something about their housing, which was a problem. So I was like 30 or so, and they wrote to Reuben Bettler, who was the CEO, and asked if they would contribute me for about a year, uh, rather than make their normal check to, you know, the, to the city for, you know, kind of standard contributions for right. corporations. He said, okay. So I ended up getting an office from Humble Oil and a staff, and we had committees on land use, on zoning, which they still don't have, and on, on housing code, which they eventually got, and qualifying for HUD-insured mortgages, and a bunch of other stuff. So I left TRW on a leave, but they paid my salary, right. and I worked for the mayor of Houston, uh, who was a little like... Uh, he was a six-term mayor named Louis Welch, which is a real eye-opener for me, a California kid, just watching, watching the way they operate in, in the South. And um, when they were on their way's money, the mayor said, 
you know, he sent me around asking for people to donate to the affordable housing fund. Right. And um, uh, that actually, I got so interested in that that, I, that I, I knew that I wanted to do something in that field. So um, the, the leave ended. I went back to Los Angeles. and Still with and, TRW. Still with TRW. And the other event besides the mayor and the leave was that HUD under then Secretary Romney, that mm-hmm. is George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, yep. came out with something called Operation Breakthrough. A lot of people call it Operation Breakdown, but it was for manufactured housing. And uh, there were a lot of competitions from corporations to an RFP that HUD put out. And so TR, I, I suggested to TRW that we should apply. We're an aerospace company. We have lots of, lots of people that are, do strength of materials and yada, yada. And so we put together a proposal which revolved, involved panels and wet cores and modules. And um, it was a honeycomb structure with polyurethane. And um, it, it was basically the floor of an airplane made into a wall or a floor. And um, the worst possible thing happened, we got selected. Mm-hmm. And um, we then built 500 units of Section 236 housing in the Sacramento area. We set up a factory. We had 70 union guys working, building modules and panels. So this is modular housing, not mobile manufactured housing which really is mobile homes this is attached Mo- this is modular housing. housing and and it qualified under the uniform billing code so it was it it was there were no code issues right and uh, we also built 350 units of turnkey housing in New Mexico for their state uh, public housing so all in we close at close to a thousand units mm-hmm. and um, we of course lost money uh, as if it was going out of fashion because we were doing very well as long as there was a demand. And another significant event happened. It was Richard Nixon, in one fell swoop with no announcement, closed down uh, the federal government in terms of loan commitments in HUD because he felt the costs were getting out of hand and inflation was running rampant. He put a um, price freeze on. People right. don't remember that of Nixon. Mm-hmm. Although Nixon was a strong, he was strong on affordable housing um, he, he basically cut out all the commitments that we had. We had 10 projects. Five were in firm commitment that went ahead, and the other five in the pipeline died. Mm-hmm. So if you're stuck with a factory and a lot of workers and you don't have something in the pipeline, you have a problem. And this problem will exist today for the people that are going into manufactured housing here right, uh, it's right a, now. It's a big deal again. So uh, TRW said... We don't like the modular business, uh, and we definitely are not suited to looking at real estate deals. I would appear before the board subcommittee, and the board was there sort of looking like the Last Supper with the original cast, wondering, I'm coming in with this risky deal in a neighborhood, and <laughs> they decided they really wanted to get rid of it. So I made an offer with a, a lot of phantom money, uh, and, I, and I, I, was, I was definitely not a candidate for... Uh, Wells Fargo's wealth management program, but I scrimmed, <laughs> I put together something, made an offer, and they they basically said, 
assume the liabilities and you can have it. So I ended up with 500 units as a general partner, 500 units. Uh-huh. Of Section 236 multifamily housing. And Section 236 is the old, that, that era's subsidized housing program. Yeah, yes, and Section 236 is a section of the Housing Act, which has an insured mortgage and a low-interest loan. So we had that. Uh, I had the, and they were in Sacramento, in the whole Sacramento area. There were five 100-unit projects, rough, roughly 100 units. And when I did that, I started, that, that started me in, Independently with my own firm, uh-huh. and so what? And what I, year is this? Uh, this then is uh, 70, seventy-eight. Seventy-eight. Yeah. Start your company. I started it in seventy-eight. Uh-huh. There's a little hiatus in there, but the punchline is I began it when I had uh, these five hundred units, which was at least a base to get started. I had some management fees, no cash flow, uh-huh. and we were losing. A lot of money, and I. Uh, one of the few things I did right was plan for capital losses because I'd read every book that said that the, the the dominant reason for failure of small businesses is undercapitalization. So I had assumed two years worth of losses, and that's what it was. But um, I I didn't manage those five hundred units; they were managed by somebody else. And I said, you know. Since I'm responsible for them as general partner, I think I want to manage them. So I started, I got into the management business. I backed into it. Uh-huh. My observation was that most of it was done very poorly, that the management in those days, you know, we're, we're talking now, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Right. Developers did low-income housing and they... Uh, they looked at the the amount of operating costs that they would assume, and they sort of backed into a number rather than estimate what it was really going to cost. And then there were a lot of foreclosures. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things that I did was start uh, to buy other people's mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I got to know uh, the people in the Ninth District of HUD. And what I discovered was that when you get to know the HUD executives – um, they have a well-founded distrust of the private sector, people promising a lot but not delivering. Uh-huh. And so I, I made it a point, my, I guess my mantra then was for our employees, which I had begun to hire, was return your phone calls and do what you say we're going to do. Just make sure that you tell HUD exactly what uh, the problems with the property are, and don't drain the property. Uh-huh. So I bought a lot of uh, properties that were about to go into what's called assignment or foreclosure. Right. That, that HUD wanted somebody to come in, refi, put some money into, and make the code violations go away and make it better. Mm-hmm. And I made a business out of that for the first 10 years or so. I must have bought 20-plus properties. Uh-huh. And... Um, and are you based in Los Angeles, or did you move up to San Francisco then? I I was uh, in San Francisco. Okay. So uh, gradually, I, I would acquire, uh, you know, three or four projects uh, each year, and then I segued into, um, out of, not out of, but in addition to acquisition and rehab, into new construction. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, in the... Uh, 80s, I 
I and a group of partners built a, 80, a project that was a transit-oriented project in El Cerrito by the BART station, mm-hmm. 80% market rate, 20% low income. But um, all the while, things were changing. Reagan had come in, and he had put in the low-income housing tax credit program. And HUD had begun to uh, not completely phase out, but we went from an era where if you were if you were involved with low in, you know, low income housing, right, back in the late seventies and the eighties, it was HUD centric. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would go back to HUD once every six weeks. That's how we met. That's right. That's how we met. So it, your relationship with HUD and your performance with HUD was critical, and we made it a point to, I think, perform pretty well for HUD. And that's why we get we kept getting offers from HUD to acquire, refinance, bring in equity capital on deals which were really uh-huh. brain damage. This was um, in the late uh, mid seventies, the late seventies. Uh-huh. Uh, no, that's that's incorrect. It was in the mid eighties because Reagan was president. And when Reagan came in in about 1984 or so, he put in the low-income housing tax credit program, which really effectively began to replace the Section 8 program. Right. The uh, number of units associated with the federal government diminished, and the number of units under the low-income housing tax credit program increased. Mm-hmm. That, that fed right into our wheelhouse because it was more complicated. The product was better. You actually mm-hmm. had to have decent architecture, you had to compete for the credits, and it sort of fit our mold. Uh, but so... It's interesting, just to go back for a second, we'll talk about yeah. that phase in a moment. It's interesting to think about, and this is ancient history for anyone listening, yeah. but in the days when everyone had to go with HUD, the first thing you described is that you had a relationship with HUD. I did. And you became one of the positive players there because there were tons of negative players who were taking advantage of government subsidy programs, slapping it up, making the dough, and getting out. Yeah, well, I mean— Or not stewarding th- this it. Is, I would say we got ourselves on the short list uh-huh. uh, of people that, that I think HUD could have confidence that we would follow through and make and improve. Right. And we also made it a point not to go in— and and try to extract a lot of money. Usually, we took no money out for years. You get the, you get the property um, upgraded first before there's any cash flow. And usually, there's not a lot of cash flow in these deals. And there there is a, a tension between earnings uh, and servicing the tenants and, right. and the property. For example. Do you, do you fund reserves? How much do you fund reserves? Mm-hmm. How much do you set aside for the capital items that have a useful life of 10 years or so? Mm-hmm. And all sorts of games can be played. We, probably, we try to not to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the world changed when Reagan came in with his low-income housing tax program, and we had to segue to that method of financing, which we still do today. Mm-hmm. And it played, and you said you liked it because it was complicated. Gave it a was advantage. It, it was, and we had we had hired people that were interested in it. In in our world, I look at it as sort of a renaissance um, environment. We we have people that do tax credits that are good on financing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm ahead of myself here, but right now we have typically anywhere from eight to 12 different financing sources. So people that really like the conundrum of how do you put together a deal right. with public and private financing, bank financing, and equity and make it work. You have other people that like social services um, and others that are more architecturally inclined. Uh, and so I, I, I think that that sort of... Uh, f- uh, was helped out our mission statement because I found that if you are just doing management, particularly low income, with a lot of challenging residents, mm-hmm. uh, you don't last long. We've we've done a, a lot of formerly homeless programs, uh, shelter plus cash, where we have people that are really pretty much off the street and really need a lot of work, alcohol mm-hmm. problems and drug. And it's very difficult to operate those projects um, for more than two or three years without turning over staff because it's very it's hard exhausting. work. Yeah, yeah. So it, it helps to have another line of work, and that would be the development side, the acquisition, mm-hmm. the rehab. We also had a small group of three or four people that did uh, consulting as owners' rep, where we looked, where we took jobs representing. Uh, owners uh, or developers looking after um, the implementation of working drawings, making sure that the work was done as it was specified. So we, uh-huh. we, we had a sort of a small consulting practice. And alongside that, you always had property management. We did. And that's a very good point, Matt. That the re, I, the, uh, starting off with a management base, which we now have 33,000 units in the state, Starting off with a management base gives you a steady, gradually increasing, mostly through management, not cash flow, uh, baseline. It's mm-hmm. it's there. The combination, at one hand, sort of washes the other. We have a steadily increasing management base. We focused on more complicated um, management challenges. We have a lot of people that in our housing that are formerly homeless. Out of our 450 projects statewide, I'd say about 70 have formerly homeless. Uh So we have a huge social services um, component of uh, out of our 1,400 employees. Uh, And on the other hand, we have a group of people that really just love the idea of trying to put a deal together, Uh affordable housing deal. And I would have to say, usually, typically one out of five make it. Mm-hmm. For every maybe it's one I eight for every deal you look of at, course. there's something that goes wrong. That's a that's actually a pretty high percentage. But oh. you're describing the lumpiness of development and acquisitions and the consistency of property management. That's right. And if people, particularly in the West Coast, think of your company, the headline is property management, property management in low income housing, and you're the maybe biggest in California as a third party manager and yeah. One of the biggest in the country overall for doing low-income housing. Yeah, we're the largest in California and the seventh in the, in the country. But we're also now in the top 10 or 15 in the way of developing affordable housing. Uh-huh. So in the last 25 years, we've gotten into, we've gone beyond the acquisition and rehab right. and, and uh, ownership to also developing new product. Uh-huh. And in doing that, we got ourselves into an, an, a mode, which I sort of began early on, joint venturing with nonprofits. Uh-huh. And back in the 80s, that was sort of um, an aberrant 
marriage. Uh, I found it a good one. I like working with the 501c3s. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've continued to do that. We have, I think we have probably at least a dozen nonprofits that we joint venture with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, it's, it, to use a hackney cliche, it is synergistic because we put up our balance sheet and make loan guarantees and right. they bring tax benefits to the project and they're good. Uh-huh. And what's the difference between how your development team approaches and executes a development project and how the nonprofit's development team executes it, if you're there or not. I'm trying to think about that. Almost none. Dynamic. And I'll tell you why. Even though we are a for-profit, and we, do, we have done some deals which were not low income, although right. 80% are, mm-hmm. um, we, are su- we are subject to the same regulatory agreements which are recorded on affordability. Right. So say the Matt... Slepin is going to build a 100-unit affordable project, you will not be able to build that project unless you guarantee in writing uh, as a matter of uh, deed restriction right. uh, that the residents will remain permanently affordable. Right. And that, and, and that guarantee is superior to bank loans. The, the bank lending is subordinate to that, to that covenant. Right. So even if we want to, want, wanted to, we can't flip the project from something which is affordable to suddenly market rate. Right. And so, and that isn't for us is not a problem. Uh-huh. That was always part of our mission statement. And it's the same mission statement than, than uh, some of the groups that we've worked with, the Bridge Housing and Mercy and EAH, and there uh, have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that we do some deals which are for profit, but most of them are not. And if we, if we do something, which is going to be using tax credits, by definition, it has the same level of affordability. Right. It, it's interesting. So first, through our conversation, you've used the term mission statement mm-hmm. three, four, five times. It's, it's always a, a balance. You are allowed certain returns. I don't think there's a cap on the return that you can get on a tax credit deal, but as a practical matter, uh, because the rents are set at 30% right. of 60% of the area median or less, mm-hmm. uh, it's not there. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for, a, um, uh, if you're going to be honest about what you're going to spend on the operating expenses and reserves and social services, there's right. not a lot of cash flow. Right. We work with, uh, I'd have to say the Bay Area, I think has the largest collection of really great nonprofits in, in the, the country. country. Yeah. More so than Boston. Yep. And uh, we, we also work with, there's some really good for-profits. Mm-hmm. I'm defensive on this point because our president has given development a shabby name. Correct. When I think of really development, I, I think of people like Jim Rouse, who did Columbia, Maryland. I think of positive, creative people. And we're working with related companies here. We don't work with them uh, directly, but... Uh, Lennar and Forest City. Look at the work that Forest City is doing. It's a free plug. Um, Actually, at today Pier, Pier, their deal closed with Brookfield. So ah, maybe the last day of Forest City that you can say that. Maybe, but they're doing Pier 70. Yep. I mean, you, you're not going to find work like that done by a committee in the public sector. And there's a role for government, and there's a role for the risk takers. Yeah, which I forgot to say, we've had some deals which have gone sideways. Right. I have one deal up in in Santa Rosa that I've been working on now for 19 years. I've lost seven and a half million bucks on. That wants to be affordable, but 
um, it all everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Uh-huh. And it was a transit deal, but the trains didn't run on time. And then we had bonds that were supposed to sell, and they didn't sell. And the city ran out of money, and there was a fire. And so those things happened. Mm-hmm. Those things happened. Not, not all of our deals came together smoothly. I can absolutely guarantee you that. That would be the history of doing deals. So there's risk would, to it. Yeah. But I, what I'm saying is I think uh, one of the things I like about this industry is that if you were consigned to a cocktail party for the rest of your life, uh, these are people that you enjoy, uh, for-profit, non-profit, even the title people who can be the most boring in the world are exciting. <laughs> and I just, I just like the group because everybody has kind of the same attitude. Nobody, people are going to leave change on the plate and they're going to produce a product, which I think is good. The product today in affordable housing is so much better than when I started. I'm sure that's the back case. in the back in the seventies, the eighties. They had they literally did have this sort of uh, Ford Ord. Uh, they they all the architects went to the school of minimum property standards under HUD, mm-hmm. and that's what they got. Mm-hmm. And then you had to go back and redo the whole project. Not now. I can this, one of our project in Hunter's View in San Francisco, uh, s- south of the ballpark, is a. If you go by and look at it. Uh, you will be quite shocked to realize that most of the people in there now are all public housing. Right. And yet when I have people visiting it, they say, how much are those condos? At the risk of being a little uh, presumptuous here, they're elegant. <laughs> we have three great architects out there, Paulette Taggart, Dan, Dan Solomon, and David Baker. We have a lot of variety. And they're better looking than most of them. They're, they're nine out of 10 of the market rate uh, multifamily products that you see, these are better looking and they're low income. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a sec. And let's talk a little bit about homelessness in San Francisco and talk about a little public policy around building elegant housing for low income people because that, that comment cuts both ways. One way is you love it. Yeah. And the other way is, God, maybe we should take our public dollars and make it go two, three, four times as far with less elegant housing for those being supported by our taxpayers. It's a great graduate school discussion. Please, I go, go there. back to the days when HUD used. To, HUD had a famous congressman that built Pruitt uh, Igo in St. Louis that eventually got torn down. Their basic attitude was: if we're going to house these poor people. We're going to make it as inelegant as possible. Why do they need air, why do they need air conditioning? Why do we just have double-loaded corridors? Why don't we do that? You know what they got? They got foreclosures. I, I, my ar- argument is that form and function are connected. Uh-huh. You build a schlock product, people will treat it like a schlock product. You build something elegant, they treat it well with respect, your turnover is less. Mm-hmm. Now in general, uh, this is certainly true, the costs for any kind of housing, including affordable, have gone up dramatically. The baseline entry level cost to build something elegant Double. or inelegant is so bizarrely high it's, in California. Yeah, doing any, doing any uh, affordable housing transaction in the Bay Area, particularly San Francisco right now, will entail at least seven or eight different sources of uh-huh. revenue at the closing. This is in contrast to 1978 when I did this. I optioned the land, I took it down, I got a construction loan, I took the construction loan with permanent financing, that was it. 
And not now. Fun that the rest of it all worked. Yeah. There were no discussions with the neighbors. You just did it. You complied with the HUD regulations. Now, and one of our latest projects at 88 Broadway, which we're doing uh, with Bridge, we've had 25 public meetings. We're into it almost four years and many millions of dollars. And we won't break ground. Uh, we'll break ground probably in March. Mm-hmm. But it takes that long now. The development cycle from when I started the business has gone from, just say, two, two and a half years to typically five to seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially in the Bay Area. Especially in the Bay Area. It's the toughest to do that. It, it is, yeah. Let's change subject. And talk about the pathway of your company. I know you bought and sold it. You sold it and bought it. <laughs> so, I, And I want to think about how a company has long-term success and what evergreen company means and succession means. So talk about selling the company, buying it back, and then talk about the dynamics of having the management company alongside the lumpiness of development and, okay. and just what that means for you guys. Yeah, well, in my career, I've had I, I had the advantage and disadvantage of clear, crisp, binary uh, choice points, and one of them was that after I'd been in business uh, for roughly uh, twenty-five years or so, I thought, you know, I'm getting long in the truth, uh, and it's a good time for me to think about selling the company. Fannie Mae had made me an offer, and I didn't do it. And finally, a company, Southern California Edison, came along and made an offer to me of about 1996 or so. Uh-huh. And it seemed perfect because they wanted to buy tax credits from our, our deals, and they wanted us to manage everything they had. And so at that time, I was the sole owner. I had been the sole owner since 1978 to the, the late 90s. And then I ended up selling to Southern California Edison uh, to a group of people that I really knew quite well. They were big right. players in the equity business. Uh-huh. I think, as you Our know. Our friend Keely Kirkendall, I think, was. He was there. Yeah. We had a lot of people that I knew and liked. Uh-huh. Um, but um, so I, I sold it, and I did one wise thing. I said, you, you buy my company. I want to keep the company intact. I want it. I want it to have the same legal structure with a board. I want to be on the board. And one of their key people was the chair, but they had seven people on the board, and I was one of them. So I don't want to be uh, basically uh, uh, suffused into your corporate structure as a division or a department. I'm and not you gonna, sold, and you weren't leaving. You were the president. I, I stayed on. The they had a management okay. contract with me to stay on for a period of time. Uh-huh. Um, and so, um, with that stipulation, I sold the company. Well, pretty much right off the bat, they brought they brought in a, a new executive from back east who had a different view of risk than I did. Uh-huh. And I immediately got into it with him. He said, you know, he thought that we should just sort of you know, not do anything in the way of development or acquisition, take and just basically do the management and uh, keep a low silhouette. And I said, that's not who we are. And uh, we ended up having a real contretemps with him. And um, basically... My, his their, their their risk profile as a large corporation was not mine, mm-hmm. and so um, long story short, I ended up 
buying the company back. So they had a motivate. They were motivated. I, I would bring them stuff, and they would say, "You know, we just can't buy it." And it was a terrible time for Southern California Edison, not not of their doing, I might add. Of course. And I think it cost the governor his impeachment. Uh-huh. So um, that combined with the fact that I had brought to them a couple of really large deals, one at Treasure Island in particular, which involved a $10 million upfront payment at risk on an empty island. They were nervous about that. We had put the, I'd put together a deal where we would help guarantee the, that we would take front-end risk on it. I thought that we absolutely should do that deal. They didn't, or mo- some of them did. Uh-huh. We had a big argument over it. We agreed to disagree, and I ended up buying the company back. But I flunked this the economics, this part of my economics class in course at Stanford, and that is that I, I uh, uh, s- s- basically got the buy low, sell high reversed, and so I, I basically ended up paying more for the same company that I had sold. And so I, I paid probably twice what I sold it for because in the five years they owned me, we'd had a really great run-up. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We had good earnings. We were buying acquisition. We had new development. Uh, and then they got in trouble on the utility side, and they were getting more and more nervous about the risk. And so when I bought it back, uh, it was not the great, world's greatest deal, but I was happy as a clam because I owned it. Happy to have your business back. I really Unfettered. was. Yep. Yeah. And when I bought it back, I I did something, uh, another occasionally uh, serendipitously wise, I brought in new partners. Uh-huh. I brought in, uh, our, the, today, the CEO, it's have done a fantastic job, Jack Gardner, and people that had been with me for 20 years. Uh-huh. And I offered them an opportunity to come in at a very very good economic basis. Uh-huh. And when you brought in new partners, you weren't bringing in, a lot of people wanted to bring in outside capital oh, partners. No. You no, were able to. No, no, I did No, I was able to finance through banks, my own banking relationship. Mm-hmm. I offered them I, what I think was a good deal, and I think they think so today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sold 50% of what I had at that time to uh, five other people, and they gradually increased their 50% share so that we all had uh, one sixth, mm-hmm. and then eventually, recently, I stepped down as chair, and they own it completely. Uh-huh. And um, um, I've taken back paper, but and I have an economic interest, but I don't have equity. Right. And I'm happy to see it because I have the very people that I've been working with for years now end up owning and running a company. Right. So I like. It's fantastic. And and that creates an evergreen company with your name on it that continues and with continues with people that you've mentored and grown and care for. And and a mission statement, we have no quarrels or squabbles over. Everybody is on the same page about what we want to do. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you use the word triple bottom line, but that's wh- how you behave. So the mission statement is the organizing principle. It's of the organizing company. principle. That's correct. Uh-huh. I'm now... Uh, at a sort of uh, not necessarily uh, company-connected um, mission, I'm doing some things that uh, I'm I'm getting more more involved in the homeless issue. Uh-huh. Talk about that. It's what you do when you uh, when you get to be 84. 
I am uh, just recently written a piece in the Business Times about my views on what we ought to be doing on homeless in San Francisco. And I, I do not think we're going to satisfy the, our 7,000 unit shortfall in San Francisco, which we haven't for years. Right. And I think we keep repeating the same thing. I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I think we need to start looking at a regional basis, which is what I'm working on right now. And I think, I think we will. I think we need to begin looking at a broader scope with getting funding, not just from San Francisco uh, companies, a la Prop C and Benioff. Right. I think we need to look beyond that at some of the horsepower we have down in uh, the Palo Alto Southern area. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, but I, I think this homeless isn't going to go away. Uh, Bay Area has more like 30,000 homeless. San Francisco has seven. Uh-huh. And it's only getting, it, it's never gotten better. Willie Brown said it was intractable. Uh, Gavin Newsom made a dent on it, but nobody has fixed it. And um, so I think we need to begin thinking about finding publicly owned open space and creating new towns in scale not just for the homeless, but also for housing, housing. So it lets, it's interesting if you put the formerly homeless or the homeless in mm. one bucket, mm. and then you also think of the current uh, f- housing affordability issue, it gets up to people in the Bay Area of 100%, certainly 80% of median, 100% or even 120% can't afford today's rent ah. or a new home. And those problems exist alongside each other. Well, you, you can't just, solve one without the other. No, that's true. And here, whereas and we have this huge homeless problem where the city has no standing because of court rulings saying that you can't move somebody off the streets unless you have a bed for them. And we don't have a bed for them. Mm-hmm. So we have this homeless problem, which is really down at the 30% of the area median income category. Right. Then we have the so-called missing middle. Right which is teachers, first responders, uh, who make 80 to 120%. Too much to be in a tax credit to you. That's right. And that's, say, 100 to 120,000 a year. Right. They don't qualify for tax credits, and they don't qualify for the welfare tax exemption. Uh-huh. So it's whereas tax credit deals don't pay ad valorem taxes and get the benefit of the tax credits, if you're $1 over eight, uh, 60% of the area median, you don't get that benefit. So the public subsidy required today, typically, for a tax credit deal for a family of four making $50,000 a year uh-huh. um, is about a little over 300000 a unit. If you double the income, a family of four making 120000 $120,000 a year, um, the subsidy goes from 300000 to 400000 That's because the developer can't sell tax credits and doesn't get any benefit on the ad valorem tax side. Right. That's one of those counterintuitive things. You think, oh, we double the income, they can service more debt. But, which is why when people move into, you know, they had a whole group of nurses come into the city a while back with jobs at UCSF and have to leave. Mm-hmm. Or the ones that don't are commuting, you know, 30, 40 miles a day. Right. Well, it's an interesting dynamic because then the traditional affordable housing advocates 
don't want the scarce public dollars to be spent on people up the economic food chain. So you're fighting with your brethren to deal with an issue that is equally important. That is true. There, are, there is a cohort in our world that, with all perfectly good intentions, said, let's focus our resources on the neediest among us. Then there's another group says, you know, that we, act, we operate in this sort of uh, eco-sphere that includes people that teach our children. Right. We care about them a whole and They're not here. The society doesn't work down. without firemen and teachers and police. Right. Absolutely true. So question for you, and you've been doing this for a long time, and you're one of the most respected, thoughtful public speakers on these subjects, but how do you change the public dynamic so that developers, development, density aren't the bad guys to the community, to the guy in the street? The guy in the street, and we think of nimbyism, which is the word around that, I always thought it was affecting low-income housing. I don't want low-income housing next door. They don't want anything next door. So density is going to happen. If it doesn't happen, we're really in trouble. It's at the top of the agenda in California. How does our industry change the dynamic of that discussion so people accept the inevitable and then go for what could be great about it, not structure it so frustratingly it never happens and then it kind of dribbles out? And we failed as an industry at changing that discussion. Often, um, I have to say that if you look as a case in point, I think it was SB 35, that Wiener uh, Act, mm-hmm. um, basically. Uh, this is streamlined. Scott Wiener, not Scott the Wiener. New York Wiener. Yes, right. Yeah, Got to get our Wieners. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> Sorry. We'll leave that one alone. Yeah. Anyway, I think that if you put that law up as a referendum for the public at large, I don't think it would have passed, but it passed this legislation and was signed by the governor. So there are some things that have to be done, I think, top-down legislatively, but that might, that, uh, might not pass if, you, if they were subject to a vote of the populace. Uh-huh. I'll give you a case in point. In Santa Rosa, they have no housing. The city is broke. They uh, wanted to um, get support for a $124 million bond that would be for housing only affordable. For it's the state environmental protection code, but it really is the oh, way to wedge in anything there are to say no. many ways you can use it to, to kill a project. And, and uh, neighbor, you know, neighbors who oppose a project, affordable or not, can uh, figure out ways of suing, uh, suing on density issues, noise, shadow, etc., and tie you up for a long time. And what they all know is that if you're applying for financing on affordable, there are drop-dead in-service dates. And if you miss them, mm-hmm. all your financing collapses. Right. So they really have you over a barrel. Mm-hmm. So... Um, there is a huge tension on that. I think the legislation that it's going to resurface again on density bonuses around transit quarters, I support entirely. Um, and I think that eventually that will pass. It should. I, I think it should. Yeah. The other thing that's going on right now that's intriguing is we have some projects which for the first time have no parking ratios. Where uh, even some of the neighbors said, we don't want a big parking structure. We want people using Uber and Lyft and city car share. Mm-hmm. 
And that is a positive change. It changes the numbers big time. It changes the numbers. And you can see that the dynamic for, if you were building big, rigid, hard to remove, concrete reinforced with ramp parking structures is now looked at as being pretty risky because what happens in five or 10 years when we're not using cars the way we used to? How do you get rid of that structure? But if the architects are building it in order with the flexibility to transition it in five years, which is inevitable to something else, be it right. where Amazon could deliver their packages. Right on. We have a, we have a project we're looking at where uh, the, a German system called Klaus that is two and three levels of stacked cars. It's hydraulic. Yeah. And it's very effective, and it takes up almost a lot less space, and you can remove it right. if you want to. Uh-huh. So you can just see the, 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 the nexus between traffic and, and transportation and housing is getting closer and closer. You know, what, what does that mean as a contribution to the world being a, a, a mentor and an inspiration for folks that way? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people looked at me as a reco- recovering Republican uh-huh. and uh, that uh, I was more and more of a pragmatist. Uh, forget the labels. How do we get this job done? Right. And uh, I I always was never interested in gated communities. Oh, I think it's fine if people want to build them. Uh, I liked working with both for-profit and non-profit partners and uh, working with people with all ages and different disciplines, which is why I think it's a great area. I don't know whether I would call it an industry or not. We've always had trouble defining what it is we are. Right? Are we an industry when we are really a collection of transaction people? If you look at that, everybody's trying to put their deals together and we compete in a very friendly manner, yeah. basically. But. It is a, a large cohort with a similar mission statement. I guess I would describe it that way. And I just, uh, I, I uh, maybe my contribution to it was that I lasted this long. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's a whole lot more than that. Yeah. It's interesting. It is an industry. So I, I view it you, as systemic, holistic business. You do. Luckily okay. in what I we feel do, better. Yes, in what we do, there's multiple systemic holistic businesses in different spaces, but both the multifamily industry that is truly an institutionalized industry at this point, and then the affordable housing component of that, which yes. is a subset, right? Uh, both are, they're businesses, there's no doubt. And they're businesses where I think you find more collaboration and realization that if we all win, the business will do better than if I compete and put you out of business. People aren't really interested in that behavior pattern. That's why we have good advocacy groups. The Nonprofit Housing Association of Northern California, I was, I was one of the first for-profit right. members of the board. I was their, their, their house capitalist insect. Yeah. On the board. Mm-hmm. Now Jack Gardner was on the board. So we have a lot of that. And we all advocate. We're all supporting uh, the SB uh, 1 and 3, I think it was, the 2 and the $4 billion bonds at the state level. Mm-hmm. We, we advocated for Prop C in San Francisco. Uh, there was another Prop C. We, so we all we move on, we advocate for certain kinds of legislation. We, none of us advocate for certain deals because we don't right. want to get into the, uh, the reads that much, but we want to do it at a, a larger 
um, 30,000 foot level. Mm-hmm. And we're active with Sacramento. Mm-hmm. All of it. Everybody is. Everybody wins if we do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, again, back to how do you change the discussion and how do you work together as an industry to change the public perception of these things that really have to happen and that people are scared of. I think one way you do that we have found that's been successful, we had a lot of people that opposed one of our the uh, projects uh, and actually in Hunter's view mm-hmm. and um, and some others uh, because we had almost entirely low and very low income. And so we took them, and we did this with 88 Broadway, we took them on a tour of our project on Bay and Taylor. It's called North Beach Place. 348 units, seniors, families, mixed income, mixed use, mixed age, exactly in our wheelhouse. We take them inside the units. We show them what it looks like. On balance, it's a lot better than what's in the neighborhood. <laughs> and we have a really good record uh, on turnover. We have almost no turnover because people who live there realize that if they're not going to live there, they'll lose certain benefits on the rent. And they're very well, uh, very much aware of that fact. So <laughs> uh, I, I find that t- taking people... Uh, not just in drive-by, but taking into the project, having them talk to our management, seeing the screening that we go through, seeing that the security that we have, and security is a huge issue for everybody. You ask, you ask some of the people that we have that were formerly in public housing and now live in our housing. Say, what's the number one issue? It isn't a washer dryer or all that. It's security. Feel safe. They feel safe, and that's we spend a lot of time on that. And it's interesting if you think societally about what you do, the cost to not do it is actually tremendous. No question. And one of the measurable metrics on that is the comparison of cost between housing a person who's homeless and having them homeless on the streets. Right. And having, having somebody homeless in the street typically costs about seventy to 80000 a year. That's because although they don't have a mortgage because they're sleeping on the street, they end up in emergency care usually four times a year. All sorts of other things occur in the and way police. it made it. Yeah, police, police, and police calls, what have you. Call. It's extremely expensive. And you compare that to the cost of Section 8 or tax credits to house the same person and the stability you get out of when they're actually sheltered with their own room and right. bathroom. It's a no-brainer. And if there's a kid, that kid stands no chance versus uh, the kid who grows up in a stable environment. Uh, you bring up a great – most chance. people don't realize there are a lot of homeless that have children. Right. Yeah. So, John, um, last question always in the podcast is if you had five minutes with a person getting into the business today and thinking of a career going forward, young person, what, what would your advice be? Um. I, my advice would be is to think about it sort of in generic terms, in, in terms of your own personal, back to this word, mission statement. Right. If you're in this business, there, there is a lot of the helper profession mentality has to come into play, mm-hmm. particularly in the social services side. If you're in the business to make a lot of money, um, then it may not be for you. But if you're in the business to make a reasonable uh, income and are willing to assume certain risks because 
what I haven't said is that there some some people in this business go out of business because they took foolish risk. Anytime you have a development risk and you have to sign recourse notes and other things like that and guarantees, there's a risk. Right. So you have to be able to have a certain tolerance for risk on the development side. You have to be able to accept the fact that you are not going to make the same amount of money that you might make on the upside if you were in the market which was completely market rate. Right. Well, you you know you were you're producing a product that rents for five dollars a square foot. You're not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have to accept that. Uh, and you're again, you're also going to be in the social services to, uh, world. But I think one of the things that uh, to me is very positive, and that is, if you're in this business, you're producing a product that you can kick. You can kick the tires. At the end of the day, you end up with something where people, you've contributed to the community and to the society right. in both physical and a design, mm-hmm. with good design. I think mm-hmm. that's it's essential, very essential. And you're making a reasonable income. Mm-hmm. It, and it's interesting. Reasonable income can mean creating net worth. So this doesn't mean not creating net worth. No, it's, you can create good. net worth. Sure. You have good life. Yeah. And and it's interesting. It may be we may be back to a generation of young people whose generational ethos says this matters because the millennial generation wants to make a difference and they want to have meaning in their lives and their careers. That's driven you through your career and driven me throughout my career. But it again, I, you may have more people who want to find that balance of making a difference and making a good living. I think that's very well said, and there's a reason why you do well in your world of placing executives um, in our world is because you understand it. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm looking at you. You know the business of building, developing, and operating in this context, and you know it not just from the development standpoint, you know it from the political standpoint. Right. You know it from how neighbors in, interact and what have you, which is another thing I didn't mention. Another element you have to be able to handle in this business is politics. Yep, big time. Hey, John, thank you very, very much My pleasure, for the conversation. Matt. We really enjoyed it. You're very knowledgeable inquirer. I love to inquire. That would be my thing. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.